Tonight's reading is from Isaiah 25, verses 1 through 9. Praise to the Lord. Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you and praise your name. For in perfect faithfulness you have done wonderful things, things planned long ago. You have made the city a heap of rubble, the fortified town a ruin, the foreigner's stronghold a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will honour you. Cities of ruthless nations will revere you. You have been a refuge for the poor, a refuge for the needy in their distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm driving against a wall and like the heat of the desert. You silence the opera of foreigners. As heat is reduced by the shadow of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is stilled. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day, they will say, Surely this is our God. We trusted in him, and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. This is God's word. My name's Phil, I'm the Associate Vicar here, and it's my privilege and delight to preach this wonderful passage to us on Easter Sunday. Let's pray together. Our Father God, we thank you and praise you for the good news of Easter. Help us to understand more why Easter is the greatest thing that has happened to the human race as we look at these wonderful words of Isaiah together. Amen. There is a huge amount of confusion these days in our culture about Easter. A recent survey in one of the broadsheets found that 30% of the population of the UK knew the basic facts of Easter. 70% had no idea. One person surveyed thought it was something to do with bunny rabbits in ancient Rome. <laughs> well, let me tell you what Easter means for us in simple language. According to the words of Isaiah we just had read, Easter means Jesus ate death for us so that we can eat a feast with him. The central message of Easter is that Jesus ate death for us so we can eat a feast with him. And when our news is dominated by daily death rates and the command to, to exclude, to separate, to isolate from other people, well, these words are more precious than ever. The true message of Easter, the Easter of the Bible, the Easter of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is the message of hope that our culture most desperately needs right now. And I hope that as we look at it together, you will find it is the message that fills you with hope and with joy. 
Now, our reading comes from the book of Isaiah. It was written 700 years before Jesus' life, death and resurrection. Isaiah is a prophet in the Old Testament. But God revealed his wonderful plan of salvation for humanity to the prophet Isaiah. And these verses look beyond the death and resurrection of Jesus, where much of Isaiah is focused. They look to what happens when Jesus returns at the end of history to, to remake the world and to bring in perfection and glory forever. There are three things that we'll learn as we think about the, the rule of justice and joy that Jesus will bring in. Three things. God is preparing a feast for us to eat. God has eaten death for us. And thirdly, those who trust in God will be full of joy. Firstly, God is preparing a feast for us to eat. What on earth is God doing? He, I mean, he finished making the world a very long time ago. He finished his conquest of sin and death and evil as Jesus died on the cross over 2,000 years ago. So what on earth has he been doing since then? Well, he's making a feast. That's what he's doing. Look at verse 6 of Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. He's preparing a feast. And it's, it's not a Christian feast either. It's not sort of cocktail sticks with cheese and pineapple and stale quiche, slightly flat, Diet Coke and non-alcoholic grape juice. No, this is fillet steak and vintage Chateau Margaux. This is, this is Christmas dinner at a, at a Michelin three-star restaurant. This is seriously gourmet. And the days of self-isolation and social distancing are well and truly over. This is a feast to which everyone is invited. All the barriers and the prejudices which separate us, which isolate us on earth, have been torn down. There's no racial distinction as if this is only for white people. There's no educational standard as if, oh, you've got to have a university degree to be admitted entry here. There's no age bar as if anybody over retirement is excluded. No moral requirement as if only those who are squeaky clean can come in. Anyone and everyone who receives God's free offer of eternal life in Jesus Christ is welcome to his feast. Everything about it is rich, generous, abundant and inclusive. Now, the mountain of the Lord is symbolic. It's a phrase that represents God's rule in God's place. It's the, the high hill where his throne is, where his perfect justice and righteous rule will dominate the world for our blessing. Now, Jerusalem was a, was a picture of this in the Old Testament. But Isaiah is looking beyond earthly Jerusalem to the new creation. He's looking beyond the, the model to the glorious reality the mountain of the Lord is, is God's perfect rule over God's perfect world for our perfect joy. But what this means is that we need to rid our minds of many of the ideas, the mental images we have about God. So often we, we think of him as, as a killjoy who's, who's always turning wine into water, who's always turning laughter into silence, who's always turning colour and vibrancy into grey a God of restrictive rules and unreasonable demands, the, the headmaster in the sky. Now here we see a God of abundant generosity, a God of richness, a God of joy, 
I mean, don't forget when uh, Jesus was on earth and wanted to give people uh, a picture to help them understand what it would be like to be with him in heaven forever. He turned up at a wedding and made 600 litres of dishwater into the finest vintage wine anybody had ever drunk. Now, Jesus did also say that to become a Christian involved taking up our cross that it involves uh, self-denial and difficulties and persecution if we are to follow him. But we must not forget two things. Firstly, that actually that is the path of truest and deepest joy, the path of self-denial. And secondly, that the cross is temporary. The cross is only for this world, for this life. You see, heaven will be a place of deep, abundant bursting happiness. Heaven will not be boring, uh, an eternity fluttering around as disembodied spirits playing sort of ethereal harp music. It'll be a noisy banquet, raucous laughter, uh, tables groaning under the sheer weight of of vintage wine and and well-aged steak and strawberries and champagne and I very much hope pizzas and ice cream. See, when it comes to understanding Christianity, I don't think anybody would argue with the fact that our culture is quite confused and an awful lot has got lost in translation. But at the centre of the two key Christian festivals, Christmas and Easter, we do a lot of feasting. And theologically, that is spot on. But what makes this feast so very special? Well, the answer to that is in verses seven to eight, where the second thing we learn is that God has eaten up death for us. Look with me at verses seven to eight. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from the earth. The Lord has spoken. Now in J.M. Barry's great story, Peter Pan, Captain Hook is followed everywhere by a great crocodile. If bitten off his hand, hence the hook. And now it wants to eat the rest of him. But as well as his hand, the crocodile also swallowed a a clock. And so everywhere he goes, you can hear tick, tock, tick, tock. And so Hook is warned of his arrival. Because as soon as he hears tick, tock, tick, tock, he knows that the crocodile is coming. But he also knows that he's living on borrowed time. Because one day, one day, the clock will run down. And there'll be no tick-tock to warn him. And then the crocodile will swallow him up for good. Death stalks every single one of us, much like Hook's crocodile. The clock is ticking for you and for me. Tick-tock, tick-tock. None of us knows when time will run out and we will be swallowed up, not by a crocodile, but by death itself. And as verse seven puts it, death hangs like a, like a great shroud, a dark cloud over all of humanity. It ruins everything eventually. The greatest of presidents become worm food. The most brilliant musicians are silenced by it. The most passionate, devoted relationship is severed by death. Nothing can resist it. Oh, medicine enables us to to stave it off for quite a long time. But eventually, every single one of us will be swallowed up. 
but God will not leave death to have the last word in his creation. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that involves all peoples. He will swallow up death forever. But what does that mean to, to say that God swallows death up? Well, for the answer, we have, to, we have to actually go right back to the beginning of the story, to Adam and Eve. You see, ever since Adam turned his back on God, well, every human has followed his path. We all reject God. We ignore our creator. We use other people rather than loving and serving them. We turn our backs on God who is the source of life. And so we deserve eternal death, separation from God forever. And our physical death is a bitter foretaste of that eternal spiritual death, the death of hell. And Jesus came to deal with that. It is he who swallows up death. The night before he died, as he knelt in the Garden of Gethsemane in anguish of soul and prayed, he prayed words that are recorded in Luke's Gospel in Luke 22, verses 42 to 44. Jesus prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. The cup. It's an image taken from the Old Testament, a metaphor for God's rightful, wrathful judgment against all the wickedness and sinfulness and depravity of humanity. Uh, Psalm 75, 7 to 8 puts it this way. But it is God who judges. In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. So you see, the thing with death is is not just physical death. It is the fact that it is the judgment of a holy, pure, rightful God against our sin. The judgment of the God who is rightfully angry at what we do, at our selfishness, our pride, our abuse, our bigotry, our greed and our violence. And when Jesus went to the cross, he was drinking the cup of God's rightful wrath his punishment for sin. The death that he died was the judgment of God. He was swallowing death, being swallowed by death. And he didn't just do it with us to identify with the experience of sinful humans. He did it instead of us. He took our place on the cross. He took the cup of judgment and drank it all so that we would not have to. Actually, interesting, you see this happen in Peter Pan as well. Uh, Peter's got a drink that has been poisoned by his enemies. He doesn't realise it, but Tinkerbell the fairy does. And as Peter is about to drink it, Tinkerbell flies in between Peter and the cup and she drinks it all down to the very dregs. And she dies so that Peter can live. It's not a perfect illustration, but it helps us see the key point. On the cross, the death that Jesus died was in our place, in yours and in mine, if we trust in him. He drank down the judgment of God, the eternal death we cannot bear, so that we might go free and instead know eternal life. Now, the writer of the Hebrews says this, Jesus suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. We could put it this way, he swallowed death so that you would not be swallowed up by death forever. 
And three days later, of course, he rose again. He conquered death. He punched a hole out through the back end of the grave. And if we trust in Jesus, then we can share in the power of his resurrection life. We need not fear death as the end of our existence anymore. And he can bring us safely through the other side to enjoy eternal, unbreakable, joyful life with him forever and ever and ever. And we get some idea of what that life will be like in God's remade world in the second half of verse eight. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. Now, it strikes me how, how personal that is. It could just say, with death swallowed up, there will be no more, time, uh, no more tears, no more disgrace. But it doesn't. It, it says God will personally wipe away the tears. God doesn't just deal in crowds, in, in people groups. He deals with individuals. He deals with me and with you. And what this image of God wiping away tears and disgrace means is that life then won't be like life now. It's not just that death will be gone. All the things that cause pain and distress will be gone. All that corrupts and rots and destroys will be gone. All that abuses and harms and causes suffering will be gone forever. God's remade world will be a place of, of laughter, of adventure, of happiness, of excitement, of contentment, of wonder, of exploration, of joy. And God will personally see to it that it is like that for every single one of us. So the message of Easter is that Jesus has eaten death on a particular day in history so that we can eat a feast with him for every day in all of eternity. And the power of that resurrection life has already now been released for Jesus has risen to new life in our world. It is already at work and it's available to us in our, our marriages, our friendships, our places of work and study, in our battles with ingrained destructive habits and besetting sinful addictions. Easter is the beginning of new life and with it comes the dawning of hope. Now things won't be perfect for us in this world until Jesus returns, but already his resurrection life has begun and is starting to, uh, to renew things. He is with us bringing real, meaningful hope into our lives now, into the difficult, dark situations that we may face today and tomorrow and in the months and the years that come. Now, of course, all of this hinges on the claim that Jesus did indeed rise to new bodily life 2,000 or so years ago in a grave outside Jerusalem. Now, I'm not going to go through all the evidence now. And actually, I wouldn't hope to, to pretend that I could convince a, a rational inquirer in two minutes. But uh, if this is an issue for you, that you're, you're not convinced that Jesus rose from the grave, then can I encourage you to look at the massive weight of evidence that there is for it? You'll find some recommended reading suggested at the end of this service. It'll appear on a, on a screen at the end of this service. And I would encourage you to, to make use of the time over Easter. What a perfect opportunity to look into the claim that Jesus Christ rose from the dead so that you could have life and hope.
But just some, uh, just in summary, briefly, here's an acronym: EAR. E A R. I'm not going to do the YMCA thing. E A R. You can work that out. EAR. E. The empty tomb. It is an undeniable fact of history that no one has been able to explain away. The tomb was empty that first Sunday. A. Appearances. Jesus appeared to over 500 people in the month or so that followed his resurrection. Many of them were willing to die because they were absolutely convinced that Jesus had risen and that they'd met him and eaten with him and touched him. And thirdly, the rise of Christianity. It is pretty much impossible to account for the rise of Christianity unless Jesus rose from the dead that first Easter Sunday. Thirdly, finally, those who trust in God will rejoice. Those who trust in God will rejoice. In verse 9, we learn that on the first day of eternity, when Jesus returns, it'll be a day of deep and abundant joy. In that day, they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. There will come a day when we'll suddenly realise in full what we've been saved from. And it will be a day of weeping, but of weeping with joy. And it may well be uh, for many of us that this life is not so easy right now. And if we're honest, following Jesus sometimes feels like it makes it harder. We, we look at the, the sacrifices we've had to make, uh, perhaps relationships that we've turned away from opportunities that we've turned down. We think of bitter, painful things we've had to forgive and, and let go of. We think of sacrificial decisions that we've made to serve the gospel and to love and serve other people who are more needy than we are. And the truth is we feel a bit worn down and a bit worn out and the whispering voice inside us asks, is it really, really worth it? But then the day will come when God wipes away the last tear we ever cry with his divine fingers and shows us to our seat at his great banqueting table. And our nostrils are filled with the aroma of his heavenly feast. And we feel the warmth of heaven's sun on our backs. And we look around and see the crowd of people celebrating with us. And on that day, no one will ask, was it worth it? All of us will know and rejoice forever and ever and ever. I wonder though, I wonder though if the greatest joy will not come from seeing God's delight in us. You see, the thing that struck me afresh reading these verses this week is, is what they say about God's attitude to us. I mean, we, in one sense, we, we get that he was willing to give up so much. I mean, the scars in Jesus' hands and feet will eternally remind us of all God was willing to sacrifice to save us. But this passage is different. This passage, this passage tells us how does God feel as he prepares this great feast? How does God feel as he prepares to welcome us into his, his heavenly kingdom? Well, it starts with a feast, with a banquet, because... Because for God, it will be a day of joyous celebration as he sees you and welcomes you home. There's been a lot that's been, well, frankly, miserable about the lockdown. But one or two rather delightful stories have emerged. Did you, uh, did you read about Emma Smith's dog, Rollo? Her seven-year-old dachshund 
was uh, was in trouble after a couple of days of lockdown. He, he couldn't seem to wag his tail and seemed to be in some pain and distress. So Emma phoned the vet and eventually the vet realised what was wrong and diagnosed that Rollo was just so overexcitedly happy to have his owners at home all day long that he had sprained his tail through overwagging furiously. Isn't that delightful? Now, forgive me if it's blasphemous to, to liken God uh, to Rollo the dog. But the point is, God is so excited, so excited about the prospect of welcoming you and me into his eternal kingdom, into his remade paradise world, that he is preparing the greatest feast of all time to celebrate it. The thing that God is willing to blow the budget on, the thing that God is most excited about extraordinarily is you and your arrival safe in his paradise. No wonder we will rejoice on that day when we realise we are the treasure of God. We are what brings him excitement and joy. Now, I love Easter. I've always loved Easter. But for most of us, I guess it is a little different this year. I mean, Easter eggs and roast lamb dinner and bank holiday fun, they're not quite the same when you're so aware of the people you wish could be with you to share those experiences. Well, how very wonderful to remember that even now, God is at work preparing his great feast for you and for me. I hope that you have responded to his invitation. It's extended to every single one of us through Jesus Christ. Just put your trust in him and you are forgiven and you will share that eternal life. Today is a day to reflect on the life and hope available through Jesus because he, he drank the cup of death and judgment on the cross. And because one day soon he will swallow up death forever and it will cease to exist. And that will be a day of thanksgiving and praise. And so with every, <coughs> with every indulgent bite or sip this Easter, remind yourself this is just a taster of what is to come. Jesus has eaten death for you so that you can eat a feast with him forever. He is risen. Happy Easter. Our Father God, we thank you that the truth of Easter the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ breathes solid, real hope into our world. The hope of forgiveness, the hope of eternal life, the hope of the transforming power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, we pray, to put our trust in him. Help us to deepen our trust in him and help us to know the joy of looking forward to that great day when we will feast forever with our brothers and sisters at your banquet in your kingdom. Amen.